Didn't time it well a second time. Same thing happened during first service. Morning, guys. How you doing? Wow, you're even sleepier than first service. Okay. <laughs> just need to know what I'm working with here. Okay. Uh, before we get started this morning, I'd just love to uh, pray. We have a member who is in the hospital. Actually, two members who are in the hospital. Just love to pray for them. And so if you would feel comfortable, just lifting your hands up uh, and join me in prayer. Father, we just thank you that you are uh, the God of healing and that uh, you are the great physician, that you know our bodies perfectly and know exactly what our bodies need. And so, Lord, uh, we just pray for these two individuals that are in the hospital, um, one with um, COVID and pneumonia. We just pray that um, you would give healing, um, that you would strengthen the lungs, that you would... Um, remove any signs of COVID or pneumonia. You allow them to get off of uh, oxygen and be able to breathe normally. That there would be no long-term effects. And um, Lord, we pray for Jean, who's been in the hospital for a few weeks. Just ask, would you finish um, the process of healing that you've begun and also allow him to leave the hospital? And just pray that for both of them that they would receive full healing and um, get to glorify you because of it. Christ in me pray. Amen. Well, my name is James. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm super grateful to be here this morning um, sharing God's word with you. And just want to say welcome to those of you that are in the room or on the internet or watching later. Thank you for joining us. Uh, before we get started this morning, I'd just love to pray for our time together. So let's do that. Father, we just thank you um, for the God that you are. You are a good God, um, and we thank you for your word that reveals who you are, your will, your intentions, your desires, gives us a source of truth so that we know what is true. And I just pray as we get into your word this morning, would you speak to each of us and teach each of us, including me. I know that I have nothing to offer apart from the Spirit. Just ask, would you speak clearly? Would you work? Would you do the things that uh, you want to accomplish this morning. Would your will be done here? We love you, Lord. In Christ, we pray. Amen. So as you may know, we've been going through the book of Luke, and I'd love to just set the stage for you a little bit where we are in Luke. So first of all, recognize that it is uh, the Passion Week, meaning it is the week of Jesus's death on the cross. Um, and so we are actually, at this point in the storyline, we are uh, at the Last Supper. Okay, so Jesus has washed their feet and has um, taught them some things, set them down. Last week, Chad um, did a beautiful job talking about communion and Jesus um, going through the first communion with them. So I would like to start off from there by kind of painting a picture of what's going on in the room at this point. Uh, the room would probably have been dimly lit with just a few lamps around it to, to offer a light, kind of a flickering light, kind of orangey light that has kind of a crackling sound as the lamps burn. The disciples would be sitting around the table, um, reclining, um, as they would at a short table. And everyone is dead silent, which is why you can hear the lamps crackling. 
Now, we wish we could say that it was out of reverence for the moment that had just happened, but it's actually out of shock because Jesus has just calmly announced, one of you will betray me. Dead silence. And then as if someone had slowly turned the volume on, whispers begin. One of them says, me? The other one says, it, it, it couldn't be me. The other one, is it me, Jesus? It, it couldn't be me. I, I'd rather die than betray him. And the volume starts to increase as they continue to ask questions. And before long, the questions start to become a little bit accusatory. Well, it's not me, but maybe it's Thomas. He's always doubting what Jesus says. That's a doubting Thomas joke. Or maybe it's, it's Matthew. He's a tax collector. You can't trust tax collectors. They betrayed our people. They could betray Jesus too. The accusations start to fly. Without anyone hearing, of course. They're good Christians. And as they're going back and forth, Peter gives John the look. Right? So John is reclined up against Jesus, and Peter looks at him and goes, Right? One of those. And John immediately realizes, recognizes what he's saying, and John leans over to Jesus and says, Jesus, who is it? And Jesus sort of cryptically says, it is he who I give this bread to. And he dips the bread and hands it to Judas. And Judas locks eyes with Jesus in that moment and looks at him and says, is it me? And Jesus replies, you have said it so. Now, while all the other disciples are still talking amongst themselves about who it could be, a significant moment has passed by that nobody even noticed because in that moment, Satan enters Judas. Which is a crazy comment in this passage. Satan, in that moment, enters Judas. And Jesus looks at Judas and Satan and says, go and do what it is you're about to do. And sends him out. And Judas gets up and leaves. And the other disciples just assume, as they see this quick interaction, just assume Judas is going to maybe uh, give some money to the poor or buy something for the feast or something else because he's the money bag guy. But Judas and Jesus both know what's going on. Notice that Jesus has perfect control over the situation. Jesus sends him out to go and do what he's about to do. And throughout the course of these events, the conversation has started to slowly shift. It kind of went from the area of, is it me? To, oh, maybe it's this person. To now people are starting to kind of hear their name being tossed around. They're starting to get a little defensive. And then things start to change. It goes from, is it me? To, it couldn't be me. To, well, it's not me because I'm actually the best of the disciples. To, I'm the greatest in the kingdom. And in a way, you, you read this, and, and this, this statement feels a little ridiculous. It goes from uh, this, this question of, is it me, am I the one that is going to betray Jesus, to who's the greatest in the kingdom, right? Which feels a little ridiculous, and yet I know if I was there, I would have fallen for the same thing. 
And so they start boasting about, you know, why they're the greatest in the kingdom. And it should, you know, it's, it's me, I'm the greatest in the kingdom, whatever else. And so Jesus hears this conversation. And that's where our story is going to pick up in Luke chapter 22, starting at verse 24. A dispute also arose among them, also meaning in addition to the conversation about who's going to betray Jesus. A dispute also rose, arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. Now, uh, let's just pause for a second here and understand a couple things. Number one, they are under Gentile rulership. Okay, right? Rome is in control right now. They know exactly what uh, Gentile kings are like. Which, by the way, they're probably not any different from Jewish kings. We know just from Jewish Pharisees and that kind of thing that they don't, they don't have any different issues, right? It's the same kind of thing. But they, they lord their uh, authority over them, right? They, you know, and we, we've seen people do this in a whole vast number of ways, right? We're familiar with this. We're familiar with this idea, right? You get a bad boss that like you can just tell, or like that supervisor that just thinks they're like in charge and they're like actually a step down from that, right? Or, or you know, you see people that just start getting a little puffed up because they're getting a little extra authority and it's like, well, now I'm in, you know, I'm the, I'm the big guy. I'm the head honcho, right? They start to kind of throw their weight around a little bit, right? Look how important I am. And then the word benefactors, if you're not familiar with the word benefactors, it essentially means someone who uh, does good, generous things for people, right? Like, you know, for example, a benefactor might give money to an individual, right? And, and kind of take care of them. That, then that person is the benefactor of that person. And so uh, this, this phrase actually, where it says uh, those in authority over them are called benefactors could actually probably be better translated have themselves called benefactors. In other words, look at me, right? Look at what good I'm doing, right? And so what Jesus is describing here, even though he's, he's picking on Gentiles specifically, he's simply describing the natural way of human beings, right? A little bit of power, a little bit of authority. Look how great I am. Do one good thing. Look what a great thing I did. I mean, think about how many times Jesus had to explain to people, hey, don't let your good works be, you know, trumpeted all about, right? Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that kind of thing. Because our natural tendency is, look how great I am, right? And Jesus says, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves, Jesus is going to flip the picture upside down. Now, we, we have some sense of this in our culture, but the youngest person in a group was the least respected, least valued, et cetera, et cetera, right? They were the least important person in the room. The youngest person had the least amount of life experience and authority and all these other things. They were just down at the bottom of the totem pole. And so Jesus is effectively saying, hey, if you're the, if you're the leader, if you're the greatest in the room, be the least, right? Be the lowest, be the least noticed, the least valued, the least impressive, right? Serve, right? Serve, serve people. In fact, he says, for, one, uh, for who is greater? The one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? 
Well, it's obviously the one who reclines at the table, right? The, the, so if you imagine like a king sitting at a table and then some servants coming in and putting food down, which one's greater? It's the king, right? Obviously. But I am among you as one who serves. So if you want a picture of this played out, look at Jesus. Who is Jesus? God in the flesh. You don't get any greater than that. You don't get any higher than that. You don't get any more deserving of recognition, authority, service, etc. than Jesus. What does Jesus do? Serves. So we have no excuse. Right? If Jesus, king of the universe, came and emptied himself, put himself on the earth, lived like a baby, <laughs> and then into, into adulthood, serving the whole way, then leading a ministry for three and a half years that involved epic amounts of serving, and then ultimately serving by laying his life down for people. If that was how he did it, how much more should we do it when we're not nearly as great as he is? It's an intense statement, right? So with us, the, the greatest should really look like the least great. That's what he's getting at. The greatest should be the ones serving the most, doing the worst jobs, getting the least recognition. That's, that's how the kingdom order works. The greatest is the least in the kingdom. So he continues on. And he says this in verse 28. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, that's an encouraging statement, right? That's an exciting thing for them to look forward to, right? He's, he's talking about eternity. What eternity is going to be like? You're going to sit at my table. You're going to judge the 12 tribes. It's going to be amazing, right? So gives them something to look forward to, right? It also shows a picture of how great they are, right? They're going to be ju judging the 12 tribes of Israel. They're going to be sitting at a table, right? They're, they're important people. They're great, which means what for them? They ought to be the biggest servants of all. They ought to be the lowest people of all. So, what's interesting is the next passage, which feels disconnected. When I was first looking at this passage, I thought these were two totally different things going on. I could not figure out the link between them. But Jesus all of a sudden turns to Peter, right? Simon Peter. He turns to Peter and he goes, Simon, Simon. Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. There's so much in this passage. There's so much going on here. So let me first actually talk about Peter. Why Peter? Why does Jesus turn and talk to Peter specifically in this moment? Because out of the 12 he's the leader, right? Jesus specifically said he was going to build his rock on, or build his church on this rock, the rock being Peter. That's why Peter's name is Peter. It means rock, right? Jesus specifically gave Peter an assignment, right? 
You're going to be the leader. That's your job. That's what, that's what you're doing, right? You're going to lead the 12. He, he gets to do some really cool things, right? He gets to perform miracles. We get to see him do that a couple different times. He gets to preach to the thousands at Pentecost, right? He's the one that stands up and preaches to the thousands, like 3,000 people are saved, right? He's going to uh, witness the grace of God extend out to the Gentiles. He's going to be part of the revelation that the Gentiles are supposed to come into the fold. And then he gets to sort of defend the Gentiles and say, no, they belong and they don't need to follow Jewish law. He has a lot of really cool responsibilities in this unique role. So Jesus looks at him and says, hey, Satan's asked to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed that your faith may not fail. Here's another interesting piece of this though. In that phrase, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. The word you in Greek is plural. So he's looking at Peter and talking about the twelve. Now 11. He's looking at Peter and saying, Peter, Satan has demanded to have you all. That he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, singular. I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. We get to see a picture of a whole mess of things going on right here. First, we get a picture of the gospel. All right, this is the gospel right here. <clears throat> Jesus knows Peter is going to fail, right? He knows he's going to fail. And so Jesus has prayed for his faith to hold him fast in spite of the failure. And we're going to get to see later the grace of Jesus as he restores Peter after his failure and, and, and basically shows him, hey, Peter, you're still with me, right? So we get to see the gospel. Number two, we get to see Peter's responsibility to the others. His job after going through this failure, God is going to use it to make him more capable of strengthening the others. The cool thing about God is that he can take our sin and failures and use it for good. And in this case, he's going to use it to make Peter ready to do ministry. To take care of the brothers. And number three, we get to see a picture of how Peter, as the greatest, is going to need to be the most humble and the most serving so he can strengthen his brothers. Which, by the way, is what we're supposed to do. So Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to both prison and to death. Because Peter's bold and, you know, convinced of his, his own goodness and whatever else. No, 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 I'm not going to do that. I got you, Jesus. Right? Which is a little unfortunate. You'd kind of like to see Peter be like, oh no, please Lord, help me. You know, something like that, right? <laughs> but he kind of just doubles down. He's like, no, that's not me. I'm not going to do that, right? And Jesus replies, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times, or deny that you know me three times. Now, the beautiful thing about this is that all of this is happening before he fails and Jesus is telling him what's going to come out of it, right? He's getting reassurance even before he fails about how Jesus is going to cover that with his grace, which is pretty sweet. But the other thing that I really like about this, my, one of my favorite parts about this is that Jesus prays for Peter, right? That's really cool. It's really cool that Jesus prays for Peter in this moment. 
Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith won't fail. And that immediately makes me like, oh man, I would love to have Jesus pray for me. Which he does. So let's look at some passages. In John 17, Jesus prays for all believers. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also, he's talking about the 12. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. And he continues to pray for them. In uh, 1 John chapter 2, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. An advocate is a person who stands before someone of authority and speaks on their behalf, advocates for them, right? Jesus is advocating for us, right? Uh, he is the propitiation. Oh, sorry, let me finish that. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate in the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, perfect advocate, right? <clears throat> He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. How about we jump to uh, Hebrews 7, right? The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently and he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Intercession, prayer. That's what he lives to do always. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy and innocent, unstained, separate from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Romans 8. This is the last one. Romans 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us. So what's cool to me about this picture with Peter is he's doing the same thing for us. He's doing the same thing for us. If we have put our trust in Christ, if we are his, he is interceding on our behalf. He is ongoing in his intercession for us. That is so, so crazy to me. So cool to me. Jesus prayed for Peter's faith so that, so that Peter's faith would not fail. Did Peter fail? Yes. Did his faith fail? No. Why? Because Jesus prayed for him. Peter epically failed. Absolutely failed. Heavy sin, right? But Jesus had prayed for his faith and he was restored afterwards. And God used that to make him more ready to strengthen the brothers. So then, as if the other disciples were getting off a little easy on this situation, Jesus explains how it's going to be for everyone. He says this. 
And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. And likewise, a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me. And then he quotes the scripture. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. Epic miss. And he said to them, it is enough. Jesus gives them this very like important, like, hey guys, you need to realize you're about to face a lot of pressure coming back at you. It's no longer going to be like it was where I could send you out. You just live on the land. Everything's good. People can take care of you. It's a lot different now. And they're like, hey, we've got two swords. You missed the point. (laughs) Right? Jesus is just painting a very clear picture of reality. If Jesus was numbered among the transgressors, what do you think happened to his followers? What do you think will happen for us? There's just a clear reality that the world is not in favor of Christ. And so it's not in favor of us either. Which means we will face persecution, trials, and tribulations. The degree to which, that depends. We can see drastic changes in our country or it can be pretty mellow. We don't really know, but we will face some form of it because the Bible promises it. But remember, just before this, Jesus had given them a very hopeful picture to look towards. Eternity. Right? Jesus was spelling out for him, endure now because that's coming. You'll sit at the table and eat and drink with me. You'll spend eternity with me. That's where we set our eyes in the midst of trial and tribulation, persecution, whatever things come along our way. We set our eyes on eternity with him, right? The hope of our future in him. That Christ is returning. This will not always be like this. Some of you may know this. Some of you may not. My, my kidneys are failing, <laughs> okay? This is something, this is one of my fun medical things, Right? And one of the things that I think about when I think about my kidneys failing is how much I need a new body. This body is not made for eternity. It's broken, right? It's fallen apart on me. But I have a wonderful, glorious hope of a new body on a new heaven and new earth for all of eternity with Jesus. And so when trials, tribulations, persecutions, whatever come my way, that's my hope. That's where I set my eyes. That's where Jesus is trying to get them to set their eyes. So Jesus calls them to remain faithful and to display greatness with great humility. Great heart of serving laying down of life, just like him. He's not asking us to do anything he hasn't already done and done better. So I want to ask two simple questions for us today, two, just two things to ponder on, because this passage touches two ideas that I think are both well, well worth thinking about. The first question, what kind of greatness are you pursuing? Are you pursuing greatness by the world's standards 
or are you pursuing greatness by Jesus' standards? Man, there is a pull towards the things of this world. My flesh wants to go running for them. Whether that is greatness in money, respect, influence, being liked, whatever it is, right? We want to rise. We want to be seen. We want to be noticed. I want people to know that I do good things, that I'm a good guy, you know, whatever else. But Jesus' picture of greatness is pretty opposite of that. Serve. Pour out yourself. Be as one who isn't great at all. Because we have a great hope and a great future, and that's where we're investing. Greatness there. Greatness in his kingdom, not here. So the first question is, what form of greatness are you after in your life? And the second question is, how does the idea of Jesus praying, interceding for you, hit you? If you've never put your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you've never surrendered your life to him and said, I need you and I need you to intercede for me, maybe a good time to do that would be right now. Maybe now would be the right moment to lay down your life and say, I need you. Because Lord, I know I'm walking around with a ton of baggage, a ton of sin. And I know that there is one answer for my sin. I need you. Or maybe you've put your trust in Jesus. Have you ever thought about the fact that he is interceding for you constantly? I hadn't. But man, that is cool. That is amazing. To know that I'm held in by his intercession. That he is talking with God about me. (laughs) Praying for me. Looking out for me. Making sure that things are lining up the way they ought to in my life. Jesus praying for me. That is a mind-boggling idea to me. That's really cool. That's really powerful. And so, if you've never considered that before, just take a moment to enjoy that thought. Appreciate that reality that if you are his, he is interceding for you. That is so powerful. Let me invite the the worship team back up. So what I want to do is just pray. And then I'm I'm going to give you just a little time on your own, just just to wrestle a little bit with those two things. What kind of greatness am I pursuing? And what does it mean to me that Jesus is interceding for me? Let's pray. Father, your word is good. It's sweet. And I'm grateful for it. Lord, I have have nothing to offer apart from your word. But there is such powerful truth in it. I know that I have a tendency towards pursuing the wrong kinds of greatness. My flesh wants to yank me that way all the time. And I'm grateful that you take those failures and turn them into things that you can use. I'm grateful for the grace that you give me for those things. So Lord, I just ask, would you 
reveal our hearts to ourselves? Would you show us what kind of greatness are we after? Are we after greatness in the kingdom or, or simply greatness in the world? Would you help us to pursue the right kind? Not for our glory, but for your glory. And Lord, I thank you that Jesus is in constant intercession for me. Man, I need that. I love getting to see the, the tangible picture of Jesus saying, Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith won't fail because I think that helps me to imagine what it is like to have you interceding for me. That is a cool thing, Lord. That is a beautiful gift. One of just hundreds of gifts you give us. Would you help us to treasure that, Lord? And if there are any here today that have not yet put their trust in you, have not yet surrendered their lives to a God who loves them and said, I need you. I will fall under my sin and I will spend eternity in hell without you. Will you come and rescue me? Would you help them to do that now? So Lord, we just offer you this time to work in our own hearts to talk with you. Thank you for your goodness towards us. Thank you for your intercession on our behalf. Would you keep us firmly in your hands? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I just want to mention, because I'll probably forget when I come up the second time. If you've made a decision for Christ today or before, one thing that we've started doing here at PV is we just have these little brass tags that you can put your initials on and what year that you put your trust in Jesus. And you can just go and hang it on the big Jesus sign out there. And we'd love to help you do that. And it's just a way to say, I'm in Jesus. He's, he's done something in me. I identify with him. And so if that's something you'd like to do after service, I just want to encourage you to go out there and make a tag. Please feel free to come and talk to me or other people if you have questions about what it means to follow Jesus or how we can help you take some next steps.